hey, of mice and men, who knew? Let's do this. Um, right, now then. Well, firstly, I'm very disappointed in you, class. Set you some homework, you didn't do it. Like I said, all together now, how do you like your beans? You're all supposed to say, with ketchup. I'm hugely disappointed. Right, let's crack straight on, shall we? So Lenny and George now are in the ranch. It's established as a dangerous place. Um, they've met Slim, McCurley's wife, McCurley, they met Candy. There's only one more major character to come in now. You met Carlson, who was a minor character, um, but is worth knowing, but isn't going to come up as a question on his own in the exam. And you met, you've met the boss who will not come into the book again. Um, just to remind you how this works, if anybody who's new to this, I'll basically read and interrupt myself a lot, like I would in a normal lesson, to give extra detail. It's difficult for me to follow questions while I'm reading, um, but I, I, you know, I occasionally have the odd glance, but at the end we'll have a little question and answer. I'll go through all the questions, and if there's anything that you want to raise, then great, I'll, I'll address them. Uh, or if you want to ask a question at the end, cool. No question is too basic, I promise you. Anything at all that you need to ask, ask it. Okay, right, let's get cracking. As I pour water all over my legs. Good start. So if you remember, at the end of yesterday, Carlson wanted Candy's dog to be shot. He said it can't look after itself anymore. And... Slim said he's, his dog had puppies. Then he got excited, and so Lenny has got a puppy. Bless him. So, let's have a look. Lenny came in through the door. He wore his blue denim coat over his shoulders like a cape, and he walked hunched way over. Hey, Lenny, said George. How you like the pup now? Lenny said breathlessly. He, he, he's, he's brown and white just like I wanted. He went directly to his bunk and lay down and turned his face to the wall and drew up his knees. Suspicious at all? George put down his cards very deliberately. Lenny, he said sharply. Uh, what you want, George? I told you you couldn't bring that pup in here. What pup, George? I, I, I ain't got no pup. George went quickly to him, grabbed him by the shoulder and rolled him over. He reached down and picked the tiny puppy from where Lenny had been concealing it against his chest. Then he sat up quickly. Get him to me, George. George said, you get right up and take this pup back to the nest. He's got to sleep with his mother. You want to kill him? Just born last night and you take him out the nest? You take him back or I'll tell Slim not to let you have him. Then he held out his hands pleasingly. Get him to me, George. I I I'll take him back. I didn't mean no harm, George. Honest, I didn't. I, I just wanted to pet him a little. George handed the pup back to him. All right, you get him back there quick. And don't you take him out no more. You'll kill him, first thing you know. Lenny fairly scuttled out of the room. Slim had not moved. His calm eyes followed Lenny out the door. Jesus, he said. He's just like a kid, ain't he? Sure, he's just like a kid. There ain't no more harm in him than a kid, neither. Except he's so strong. I bet he won't come in here to sleep tonight. He'll sleep right alongside that box in the barn. Well, Lenny, he ain't doing no harm out there. It was almost dark outside now. Um, key little bit this, isn't it, in terms of not only learning about George, because like I said yesterday, he's able to talk to, to Slim, so we learn about his deeper feelings. He can't talk with any real 
detail to Lenny about his how he feels inside or who he is. Um, but also in terms of Lenny establishing his character and establishing how we feel about his character. Good drama works, good literature works when you care about the characters. Um, I often give the example in class of, oh, I can never remember which one it is. It's Lady in Black or Lady in White. I'm sure it's Lady in Black, the Daniel Radcliffe film. Dreadful film. Dreadful film. It's just loads of jump scares. It's supposed to be a horror film. It makes you jump, but it doesn't make you scared. It, and it doesn't make you, hey, take the S off scared. What do you get? Cared, damn. Take the S off scare. It doesn't make you care. Daniel Radcliffe's character doesn't get established at the start. So I don't give a damn about him. I don't care whether he lives or dies. So frankly, I don't care what happens in the film. If you make us care about a character, then you're going to actually get emotional about it when things happen to them. Um, I haven't watched Carnation Chief for decades, but is it Ashley, the, it was a high-pitched butcher? There's a phrase. Um, and he was very lovable, and they made you like him as a character. So when a tram dropped on him and killed him, soap operas, um, he actually felt upset because a nice guy just got squashed by public transport. So, yeah, establishing Lenny's cute, as he keeps saying, he's got no harm in him. He's strong, he's kind of dangerous, but he's got no harm in him. Um, and he's nice and he's sweet and he acts like a little toddler. Oh, give me back my puppy. He wants to be with the puppy. He's going to go and sleep with the puppy. Yeah, because he just loves it so much. He's so sweet. So they're establishing that our, our love, our affection for Lenny, aren't they? Yeah. Let's go back. Um, old Candy, the swamper, came in and went to his bunk, and behind him struggled his old dog. Oh, hello, Slim. Hello, George. Been nine of your play horseshoes? I don't like to play every night, said Slim. Candy went out. Are you guys got a slug of whiskey? I got a gut ache. I ain't, said Slim. I drink it myself if I had. And I ain't got a gut ache neither. Got a bad gut ache, said Candy. And goddamn turnips give it me. I knowed it was gonna before I ever ate them. The thick-bodied Carlson came in out of the darkening yard. He walked at the other end of the bunkhouse and turned on the second shaded light. Remember, there is racist language in this. Oh, my slideshow's not showing. Sorry, I'm just gonna interrupt myself for just a sec. Because like I said, I want everyone to appreciate that there is bad language in this, but much worse, there is racist language in this. Okay, I've, I've, um, I've messed this up, haven't I? Hmm. There you go. Because <laughs> there is racist language coming up now, and like I said, I do apologise for it. I, don't, I only apologise out of form for the swearing. It's quite mild, but the racist language is a different thing. And so Carlson walked to the other end of the bunkhouse and turned on the second shaded light. Darker than hell in here, he said. Jesus, how that nigga can pet shoes. He's pretty good, said Slim. Damn right he is, said Carlson. Don't give nobody else a chance to win. He stopped and sniffed the air and, still sniffing, looked down at the old dog. God almighty, that dog stinks. Get him out of here, Candy. I don't know nothing that stinks so bad as an old dog. You've got to get him out. Candy rolled to the edge of his bunk. He reached over and patted the ancient dog and he apologized. Been round him so much, I never notice how he stinks. Well, I can't stand him in here, said Carlson. That stink hangs round even after he's gone. He walked over with his heavy legged stride and looked down at the dog. Got no teeth, he said. So stiff with rheumatism. He ain't no good to you, Candy. And he ain't no good to himself. Why don't you shoot him, Candy? 
The old man squirmed uncomfortably. Well, hell, I had him so long. I had him since he was a pup. I herded sheep with him, he said proudly. You wouldn't think it to look at him now, but he was the best damn sheepdog I ever seen, George said. I've seen a guy in weed that had an Airedale could herd sheep. Learned it from the other dogs. Carlson was not to be put off. Look, Candy, this old dog just suffers itself all the time. If you was to take him out and shoot him right in the back of the head, he leaned over and pointed. Right there, wide. Never know what hit him. Candy looked about unhappily. No, he said softly. No, I, I couldn't do that. I, I had him too long. You don't have no fun, Carlson insisted. He stinks to beat hell. Tell you what, I'll shoot him for you. Then it won't be you that does it. Candy threw his legs off his bunk. He scratched the white stubble whiskers on his cheek nervously. I'm so used to him, he said softly. I had him from a pup. Well, you ain't being kind to him, keeping him alive, said Carlson. Look, Slim's bitch got a litter right now. I bet Slim would give you one of them pups to raise up, wouldn't you, Slim? The Skinner had been studying the old dog with his calm eyes. Yeah, he said. You can have a pup if you want. He seemed to shake himself free for speech. Carl's right, Candy. That dog ain't no good to himself. I wish somebody'd shoot me if I get old and cripple. Candy looked helplessly at him, for Slim's opinions were law. Maybe it hurt him, he suggested. I, I don't mind taking care of him. Carlson said, the way I'd shoot him, he wouldn't feel nothing. I'd put the gun right there, he pointed with his toe. Right back of the head, he wouldn't even quiver. Candy looked for help from face to face. It was quite dark outside now. Okay, I'm stopping for a second. Partly because there's a lot of key stuff in there. Note pens at the ready. Note pens, that's an invention. But also because Steinbeck stops there. As I'll explain in a moment. Let's go through what's happened there first, though. Let's be honest. Carlson is being incredibly selfish here. Remember Steinbeck's theme that people who are on their own, and Carlson, I know he's in the bunkhouse, but he is on his own. He has no real close friendships, um, like most of the people in the, in the book. He's acting out of selfish desire. He's trying to put it in a different way to get his way and justify it, talking about the dog is suffering, the dog is old. But he's not really thinking about the dog's welfare. The key thing is the dog stinks, and he doesn't like it. He wants the dog dead because he doesn't like the smell in the, in the bunk room. It's horrible. Now, have you noticed as well, when Carlson put it to Slim before, yesterday, yesterday's session, um, he said all the right things, like the dog is suffering. But when he actually comes up to it now to try and push it home and make it happen, he, start, he can't help himself and he starts saying what he really thinks. The dog smells, it annoys me. Um, of course, poor Candy, who was talking proudly of the dog. Remember, George talked of Lenny in the past, and the word proudly is used, the adverb by Steinbeck, because it's a similar relationship, isn't it? One's dominant, the other isn't, but there's a genuine love there. So, Candy speaks proudly of his dog, but they turn to Slim. Remember what I said, Slim is not a normal character. He, he's that exaggerated paragraph when he first comes in, that I, I said yesterday I didn't understand when I first read, and now I get it completely. He's not a normal character. He's described in a different way. And part of the reason for that is he is the man who knows everything. 
He is the one with genuine authority. The others listen. He says they do. And so they turn to him for judgment. Candy doesn't want his dog to die. He turns to, they turn to Slim. And Slim reluctantly says, yeah, the dog is suffering. I wished if somebody would shoot me if I was old and a cripple, which is an ironic thing, of course, to say in front of Candy, isn't it? He's got no hand, remember? He's got a hand missing. But note the difference. Slim is genuinely saying, your dog is suffering. We should put it out of its misery. Which is what happens, isn't it? You know, pets are put down. It's really sad, but sometimes, you know, You've got to do what's right for them and stop their suffering. So Slim is saying that. Carlson is just saying, I don't like the smell of the dog and I'll use whatever excuse. Okay, now, so Slim has said that. Now Candy's got a problem because when Slim says something, decision is made, everyone respects him, he's the law or something. Um, Steinbeck stops now, he does. And this can be a little bit of context here. Steinbeck is messing with your emotions. This section of the book is beautifully written in terms of its language, but it's also beautifully constructed in the way he sets your emotions up. So we've got this now. Let's be honest. We, all, we don't want the dog to die, even though, okay, if Slim says so, then it probably is the, for the best for the poor thing. But we don't, and we feel so sorry for Candy. It's horrible. He's walked into a room just normal evening with his lovely dog that he loves, and within seconds, his dog's going to die. It's horrible. So we feel really sad and sympathetic. What happens next, we want to know. So Steinbeck doesn't tell us. Drinks for dramatic effect. Steinbeck does not tell us. This is a classic literary trick. If you want to know something, <laughs> the writer will make you wait. What will happen when Romeo goes into Juliet's tomb? She is faking her own death. Romeo goes in there, he doesn't make a short speech, he makes a long speech about how it's a shame that she is dead, and I can't believe she's dead, because she looks alive, yes, and the whole audience is going nuts and saying, that's because she is alive, you idiot, don't kill yourself, but he makes a long speech to build up that tension in the crowd, and make us want it not to happen, building up the tension through length of, of, of the speech. Shakespeare again in Macbeth builds up tension when Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, no coincidence, kill the king in their own castle. They are now washing up and trying to get away with it. And then there's a knocking on the door. Oh my God, if that wakes everybody up, they're caught literally red-handed, blood all over them. But then you get a comedy scene where a very drunk gatekeeper staggers to the gate, slowly opens it, and then makes a silly speech which talks about quite rude, funny speech about the effects of alcohol on, on men. All that time, you're thinking, why are we watching this? This is irrelevant. This is stupid. Serious stuff's happening. What's going on? Are they going to get caught? He's, again, building up the tension, making you want to get to the big stuff. So building it up so you're desperate to see what happens next. You can see how that's a good trick a writer will play. Steinbeck's just about to do that. What's going to happen to the dog? Well, you'll have to wait for a couple of pages because we're about to have an pretty irrelevant section although it's an interesting one maybe to think about if you are answering context questions because this is basically about a guy coming in who's basically only appears in this part of the book um wit um showing slim 
uh, one of these Pulp Fiction magazine things, these yellow papers. Uh, basically, they were very cheaply printed little books. Um, they were called Pulp Fiction because they were recycled paper, books that had been mashed up <laughs> because nobody was reading them, and then they put together very cheap paper made out of this pulp. Um, and they were just like lurid stories full of sex and violence and or not, not well written. Um, but they just gave people a bit of a thrill when they read them. And these guys on the farm like it. Context. This is a grim time. So any little bit of escapism people grab hold of. These guys have got pretty rubbishy lines. But they can read these corny adventure stories about cowboys and romantic heroes in the West. And makes them feel, yeah... Oh, this is good. This gives them an escape from reality. So, also it gives us a little picture of the uneducated nature of the, the um, ranchers, as you'll, as you'll see in a moment, okay? So, this, this, so we're going to have now this scene where all the way through, we're thinking, what happens to the dog? So, this is it's irrelevant. Quite fun, but irrelevant. And I've lost my page just to even add more tension. A young labouring man came in. His sloping shoulders were bent forward as he walked head and he walked heavily on his heels as though he carried the invisible grain bag. He went to his bunk and put his head on his shelf. Then he picked a pulp magazine from his shelf and brought it to the light over the table. Did I show you this, Slim? he asked. Show me what? The young man turned to the back of the magazine, put it down on the table and pointed with his finger. Right there, read that. Slim bent over it. Go on, the young man said. Read it out loud. Dear editor, Slim read slowly. Read slowly. We respect him. He's probably not got that much of an education. I read your mag for six years, and I think it was the best on the market. I like stories by Peter Rand. I think he is a wing ding. Give us more like the dark writer. I don't write many letters. Just thought I would tell you, I think your mag is the best dime's worth I ever spent. Slim does it questioningly. What do you want me to read that for? Which said, go on, read the name at the bottom. Slim read, yours for success, William Tanner. He glanced up at Wit again. What do you want me to read that for? Wit closed the magazine impressively. Don't you remember Bill Tanner? Worked here about three months ago. Slim thought, little guy, he asked, drove a cultivator. That's him, Wilt cried. That's the guy. You think he's the guy who wrote this letter? I know it. Bill and me was in here one day. Bill, one of them books that just come, he was looking in it and he says, I wrote a letter. Wonder if they put it in the book, but it wasn't there. Bill says, maybe they're saving it for later. And that's just what they've done. There it is. Yes, you're right, said Slim. Got it right in the book. George held out his hand for the magazine. Let's look at it. Wick found the place again, but he did not surrender his hold on it. It's a precious artifact. Slim can be trusted with it, but not this guy. He pointed out the letter with his forefinger. And then he went to his box shelf and laid the magazine carefully in. Wonder if Bill's seen it, he said. Bill and me worked in that patch of field peas, run cultivators, both of us. Bill was a hell of a nice fella. During a conversation, Carlson refused to be joined in. He continued to look down at the old dog. We're back to business now. At last, Carlson said, if you want me to, I'll put the old devil out of his misery right now and get it over with. Ain't nothing left for him. Can't eat, can't see, can't even walk without hurting. Candy said, hopefully... You ain't got no gun. Hell, I ain't got a luger. Won't hurt him not at all. Candy said, maybe tomorrow. Let, let, let's wait till tomorrow. 
I don't see no reason for it, said Carlson. He went to his bunk, pulled his bag from underneath, and took out a Luger pistol. Let's get over with, he said. Can't sleep with him stinking around in here. He put the pistol in his hip pocket. Candy looked for a long time at Slim to try to find some reversal. And Slim gave him none. At last, Candy said softly and hopelessly, All right, take him. He did not look down at the dog at all. He lay on his bunk and crossed his arms behind his head and stared at the ceiling. From his pocket, Carlson took a little leather thong. He stooped over and tied it round the dog's neck. All the men except Candy watched him. Come, boy, come on, boy, he said gently. And he said apologetically to Candy, You won't even feel it. Candy did not move nor answer him. He twitched the thong. Come on, boy. The old boy got slowly and stiffly to his feet and followed the gently pulling leash. Slim said, Carlson, yeah? You know what I do. What do you mean, Slim? Take a shovel, said Slim. Shortly, oh, sure, I get you. He led the dog out into the darkness. Um, again, Slim showing that he understands other people's feelings where Carlson doesn't cast Castle. Carlson doesn't, you know, he wants to say, oh, take a shovel, you don't have to bury the dog as well. Carlson wasn't taking the shovel. Slim wants to say it, but he doesn't want to say it in front of Candy because he has consideration and feelings for other people. He has empathy, so he tries to subtly say it to Carlson, and Carlson don't get it. So he has to say it, so he says it shortly, like quickly. I don't want, I don't want to say something to Candy, but now I've got to. Get over it quickly. Come on. Get a shovel. Yeah? And Carlson doesn't think about other people. And Slim does. Oh, by the way, it said they put a thong around the dog's neck and, and pulled it. Um, <laughs> dialect. Uh, a thong in American dialect would be a leather strip, like you would tie around something. Yeah, it, Not the British dialect. He didn't put some underpants around the dog's neck. That would be the final indignity, wouldn't it, really? <laughs> you know? Well, we're going to kill your dog and we're going to stick some skimpy underwear on him first. Yeah. Yeah. This next bit now, again, is beautifully written we still don't know for certain what will happen with the dog suspected sadly he's going to die but we don't know for certain and so again Steinbeck creates tension now a moment ago he created tension by distraction by doing something else and we just tense no let this bit end let's get on with the business we want to see what happens now he's going to create tension beautifully and this is something you can use in English language with your writing um by use of punctuation, short sentences. Every time there's a full stop, every time there's a new paragraph, I've got to stop reading, haven't I? There's got to be a pause. He slows down the pace of it, and he really tries to make you imagine you are right there in that bunkhouse. Everyone feels awkward and awful. Candy is there. They're about to shoot his dog. They feel awful. Some people try to distract by changing the subject, it doesn't really take hold because so many people are tense and quiet and feeling bad. It's a remarkably powerful piece of writing, this. If you get it in an extract question, you are made up. So, let's do it. You listen to it. He starts describing tiny little noises because it's so still and quiet and tense. George followed to the door, shut the door, and set the latch gently in its place. 
Candy lay rigidly on his bed, staring at the ceiling. Slim said loudly, One of my lead mules got a bad hoof, gotta get some tar on it. His voice trailed off. It was silent outside. Carlson's footsteps died away. The silence came into the room. And the silence lasted. George chuckled. I bet Henry's right out there in a the barn with his pup. He won't want to come in here no more now he's got a pup. Slim said, Candy, you can have any one of them pups you want. Candy did not answer. The silence fell on the room again. It came out of the night and invaded the room. George said, Anybody want to play a little euchre? I'll play out a few with you, said Wes. They took places opposite each other at the table under the light, but George did not shuffle the cards. He rippled the edge of the deck nervously, and a little snapping noise drew the eyes of all the men in the room so that he stopped doing it. The silence fell on the room again. A minute passed, and another minute. Candy lay still, staring at the ceiling. Slim gazed at him for a moment and then looked down at his hands. He subdued one hand with the other and held it down. There came a little gnawing sound from under the floor and all the men looked down towards it gratefully. Only Candy continued to stare at the ceiling. Sounds like there was a rat under there, said George. We, we ought to get a trap under there. Which broke out. What the hell's taking him so long? Lay out some cards, why don't you? We, we ain't going to get no euchre plate this way. George brought the cards together tightly and studied the backs of them. The silence was in the room again. A shot sounded in the distance. The men looked quickly at the old man. Every head turned towards him. For a moment he continued to stare at the ceiling. Then he rolled slowly over and faced the wall and lay silent. George shuffled the cards noisily and dealt them. Witt drew a scoring board to him and set the pegs to start. Witt said, Guess you guys really came here to work. And we stopped just one second to say, Wow, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Although, Jenny, you're quite right. It's horrible, isn't it? It's a horrible moment. Um, the tension is unbelievable. The way he builds up that tension is just magnificent in terms of style of writing. And um, the way he goes into those tiny details, the rat gnawing, the Slim's hands, just fidgeting with his hands. First Slim tries to sort of get the subject back to normal, but nobody joins in. Then George does, but unfortunately he raises the puppies as his subject. A dog is being shot. That's what they're all trying to avoid talking about. So Slim then has to address Candy and say, you know, you can have one of the puppies. Candy can't respond. And George tries to start playing cards to distract everybody or distract himself, perhaps. But nobody, well, sorry, Wit joins, but then George is too distracted by what's going on outside to actually deal. In the end, Wit explodes when he says, um, what's his exact phrase? Can't believe I've forgotten that. And why doesn't he get on with it, isn't it? What the hell's taking him so long? He's not really talking about George, is he? He's talking about Carlson, because he wants things to go back to normal. And there's a little illustration in this scene as well. Did you notice there's that really sad, poignant moment where you hear the gunshot? And Candy knows his dog is dead. And he just rolls over onto his side, staring at the wall. It's so sad. 
And that's the sign for everyone to go back to normal. Because yeah, these guys don't have friends and therefore lack consideration and feeling for other people. So what do they do? They, what do they do? Huh? What do they do? It's New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey now. And what do they do? Well, they just get on as normal. You know, this sort of respect for his mourning only happens till the dog's dead and then let's get on with things now. Now there's no concern. Um, interesting little question Wit asks him then when he says, I guess you guys really came here to work. How do you mean? George asked. Wit laughed. Well, you come on a Friday. You got two days to work till Sunday. I don't see how you figure, said George. Wit laughed again. You do if you've been around these big ranches much. Guy who wants to look over a ranch comes in Saturday afternoon. You get Saturday night supper and three meals on Sunday. And he can quit Monday morning after breakfast without turning his hand. But you come to work Friday noon. You got to put in a day and a half no matter how you figure. George looked at him levelly. Gonna stick around for a while. He said, me and Lenny's going to roll up a steak. The door opened quietly and the stable buck put in his head, a lean negro head lined with pain, the eye patient. Again, right, our last main character. Remember I said about this being written originally as a play and this very dramatic style of entrance for each character? Well, there's something telling, isn't it? Crooks is not welcome in the bunkhouse because he is black. So we don't come in the bunkhouse. This door frame has been used to introduce so many characters, hasn't it? The boss standing there, sturdy, with his thumbs either side of his belt buckle, looking authoritative. Curly's wife, <laughs> pardon me, but using the door frame almost like a pole dancer would, trying to be sexual and flirt. Curly bursting through there. And now you've got crooks who only puts in his head because he's not allowed in. His face is lined with pain. His life is tough. He is a black man in a racist society. His eye is patient. He has put up with so much, put up with such suffering. Yeah. Right. Notice how Slim talks to Crooks with a level of respect because he is a decent man. Slim took his eyes from old Candy. Look at that. Slim's looking at Candy all along. Everyone else has forgotten about Candy now. Slim's still looking at him concerned. Slim took his eyes from old Candy. Huh? Oh, hello, Crooks. What's the matter? Told me to warm up tar for that tar. <laughs> it's a very Wrexham-y sort of guy, wasn't he? <laughs> you told me to warm up tar for that mule's foot. I got it warm. Oh, sure, Crooks. I'll come right out and put it on. I can do it if you want, Mr. Slim. No, I'll come do it myself. He stood up. Crooks said, Mr. Slim, yeah, that big guy, that, that big new guy's messing around your pups out in the barn. Well, he ain't do no harm. I'd give him one of them pups. Just thought I'd tell you, said Crooks. He's taking them out of the nest and handling them. They won't do him no good. You won't hurt him, said Slim. I'll come along with you now. George looked up. If that crazy bastard's fooling around too much, just kick him out, Slim. Slim followed his table book out of the room. Again, telling, isn't it? Um... The stable book says, I can do it for you, because he's used to just being told to do that work for everyone else. But Slim actually, no, no, I'll do it myself. So, you know, he's not seeing him as almost a, a sort of farm slave who has to do his bidding. He'll do it. It's his job. Oh, I'll come and do it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Notice how Crooks always calls him Mr. Slim, because it's, again, that sort of mentality of they're above me. I have to address them all formally. Mr. Slim. Notice as well that George tells Slim to kick Lenny out, not Crooks. Even though Crooks is the one who's there, 
uh, in the barn and is seeing it, but you know, Slim is the authority figure in George's mind. Okay. George dealt, and Whit picked up his cards and examined them. Seen a new kid yet? He asked. What kid? George asked. My Curly's new wife. Yeah, I see her. Why ain't she a Lulu? I ain't seen that much of her, said George. Whit laid down his cards impressively. He just wants to gossip. He doesn't want to play cards after all. Okay, again. Curly's wife, how she's being described. Sexism. Again, remember, we never learn her name. She's Curly's wife. Apostrophe S. Apostrophe of a possession. He's, she's an object owned by Curly. Whit laid down his cards impressively. Well, stick around and keep your eyes open. You'll see plenty. She ain't concealing nothing. I ain't never seen nobody like her. She got the eye going all the time on everybody. I bet she even gives the stable buck the eye. I don't know what the hell she wants. George asked casually, been any trouble since she got here? It was obvious that Whit was not interested in his cards. He laid his hand down and George scooped it in. George laid out his deliberate solitaire hand. Seven cards and six on top and five on top of those. Which said, I see what you mean, no, they ain't been nothing yet. Curly's got yellow jackets in his drawers, but that's all so far. Every time the guys is around, she shows up. She's looking for Curly, or she thought she left something laying around, and she's looking for it. Seems like she can't keep away from the guys. And Curly's pants is just crawling with ants, but there ain't nothing come of it yet. George said, she's going to make a mess. There's going to be a bad mess about her. She's a jailbait all set in the trigger. That curly got his work cut out for him. Ranch with a bunch of guys on him. Ain't no place for a girl, especially like her. Which said, you got ideas. You ought to come in town with us guys tomorrow night. Why? What's doing? Just the usual thing. We go into old Susie's place. Okay. Let's talk prostitution, everyone. That seems like it'll be a good point to end as well. <laughs> um, the brothel. Right. Wit is now going to give us a TripAdvisor-style comparison of the two local brothels. So, prostitutes. The men, this is the sort of grim life that Steinbeck is critiquing. The men have nothing to aim for, no goals. George and Lenny are different, they've got their dream. The others are just living a day-by-day -day survival existence. They have no homes, they move from farm to farm, they find work in a farm. They work there, they get their week's pay, they go out to town on the weekend, they drink, they go to a brothel and they'll have sex with prostitutes and then they'll spend all their money and they're back to zero and they go back and they work for another week and after a few weeks they move on to a different ranch because that farm's finished doing whatever it's doing, picking this crop or that crop. So you move on to the next one. And that's the, the aimless, purposeless life that Steinbeck is saying is bad for people. Whereas George and Lenny are different, they're trying to raise money and they're trying to raise a stake. Um, Witt's description of what happens in the brothel is uh, quite something. Let's read through them. Uh, <laughs> I do enjoy this bit. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so we go into um, we go into old Susie's place. Hell of a nice place. Old Susie's a laugh. Always cracking jokes. Like she says, when we come up on the front porch last Saturday night... Susie opens the door and then she yells over her shoulder, Get your coats on, girls. Here comes the sheriff. She never talks dirty, neither. Got five girls in there. What's it set you back? George asked. Two and a half. You can get a shot for two bits. Susie got nice chairs to stand in, too. If a guy don't want to flop, well, he can just sit in the chairs and have a couple of three shots and pass the time of day and Susie don't give a damn. She ain't rushing guys through and kicking them out if they don't want to flop. Sexism. Remember, sexism, 
Yeah? How are women viewed? Curly's wife is an object owned by Curly. She is not allowed to be going around in the farm acting the way that she does. And now women are either owned by their husband or they are prostitutes. And Steinbeck again, giving us something to get our teeth into with the context. Sexist society, and this is how women are, made, are viewed. Women being objectified. So, um, <laughs> going to see a prostitute, having sex with a prostitute, he calls a flop. Yeah? Um, lovely. Susie doesn't mind, though, if you just go in and have a drink. A shot will be like a, a shot of whiskey. So, you can go in if you want there and not have sex, just have a few drinks. Um, but it's all so objectifying, isn't it? Might go in, look the joint over, said George. Sure, come along, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Her cracking jokes all the time. Like she says one time, she says, I've knew people that if they got a rag rug on the floor and a cupid doll lamp on the phonograph, they think they're running a parlor house. That's Clara's house that she's talking about. And Susie says, I know what you boys want, she says. My girls is clean, she says. And there ain't no water in my whiskey, she says. If any of you guys want to look at a cupid doll lamp and take your own chance being burned while you know where to go, and she says, there's guys around here walking bow-legged because they like to look at a Cupid doll lamp. <laughs> okay, Clara is the opposition to Susie. Clara's whole house is not as well thought of by the man. Um, it sounds like it's got a very weird sort of cutesy old-fashioned decor because he talks about Cupid doll lamps. Um, when we finish, Google Cupid doll lamps. You will be creeped out. They're like dolls, but they're turned into lamps. And, oh, I should have got some ready to show you. Um... So, so, yeah, that, 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 Susie says that Clara's we've got men who, who, who um, get burnt because they go, they like looking at a Cupid doll lamp when they go to a brothel. But my girls are clean, yeah, no sexually transmitted diseases, and there's, water, there's no water in my whiskey. So if you go to Clara, she waters down the whiskey so she can make more money out of it, and the whiskey's not as strong. Plus, <laughs> yeah they've got they're infected they've got their stis and that amazing line from wit saying that she says there's guys around here walking bow-legged because they'd like to look at a cupid doll lamp so you're bow-legged you walk with your legs apart do i have to demonstrate i think you can see my legs can you do, 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 do. don't even go to see my legs, but walking ah okay improvisation if I fall to my death, tell my wife I love it. Walking with your legs like apart, like that, like walking more like that, that's not a very good comparison. Um, nah. Because they have, how can I put this? Sensitivity between the legs, because they've got an SDI, they've caught something off one of those prostitutes. Yeah? You can tell I relish this bit. George asked, Clara learns the other house, huh? Yeah, said Wit. we don't never go there. Clara gets three bucks of crack and 35 cents a shot, and she don't crack no jokes. But Susie's place is clean, and she got nice chairs. Don't let no goo-goos in, neither. Me and Lenny's rolling up a steak, said George. Might go in and sit and have a shot, but I ain't putting on no two and a half. Well, guys gotta have fun sometime, said Wit. So, hmm, charming view of women. I, uh, there's me. There's Mrs. Griffiths. I might leave it there, I guess. We've done 40 minutes. I don't overdo it for you. Sorry, Damon, I know you want to get down to, to midday. Are there any questions you want to throw in?
as soon as I can answer them. I'm quite quiet on the comments, best unless my phone's just acting weird and the comments aren't showing. How do you like your beans, everyone? <laughs>